We are back in 2 Samuel together again this morning. Remember what we have uh, been seeing as we've been journeying our way through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel is that through these books, God is seeking to prepare uh, and, uh, and develop a heart in his people uh, that anticipates the coming of his king and the coming of his kingdom. Uh, a people who's, uh, who is prepared to walk with and trust and love and obedience the king that God provides. And as we've seen at first, the people did not want God to be their king. They wanted a king like the other nations. God gave them what they wanted. And they reaped the consequences and the disasters of that rejection of him. We saw, though, that God didn't give up on his people. He graciously provided for them a king of his own choosing, David. This morning, we're going to learn more about the heart The heart of our king, the heart that our king has for his people. We're going to learn about the work of our king, the work that the king does on behalf of his people. We're going to learn about the coming of our king, the king who's coming for his people. So if you would look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to look at just half of this chapter this morning. Uh, If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 259. We will be looking at verses 1 through 17 together. So follow along with me as we hear from the word of our God. Now, when the king lived in his house... And Yahweh had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. But that same night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says Yahweh, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your prophets and your apostles who have spoken to your people according to what you have said. Holy Spirit, we thank you through your great providential work through history that you've preserved for us, Americans, in 2022, an accurate record of the words that you have spoken to your people. We pray this morning that you would apply this, your word, to our hearts. Teach us where we need to be taught. Reprove us where we need to be reproved. Correct us where we need to be corrected. And train us that we would walk with you in righteousness, hoping in our King. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First thing that we want to look at in this passage is to see how it shows and exposes for us the heart of our King. You notice at first in this passage how the heart of David is demonstrated to us, God's people. Notice in verses 1 through 3. Now when the king had lived in his house and Yahweh had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. Here, David is looking at his dwelling place, his house where he's living. Now that there's been a lull in the attacks and the struggles that God's facing, David took time to build himself a palace to live in. He looks at God's dwelling place and David's thinking, God deserves to dwell in something greater and better. Because he's the true king, is he not? David is the one who rules on the throne of God over the people of God. But this passage isn't about David's heart. This passage is about the heart of the true king. It's interesting as we compare David's actions here. What does he do? He's the one who's sought to build himself a house. The, the peace that the people are experiencing is for a time. It's evident later in the chapter that there are still enemies that are surrounding and plaguing God's people. We'll see in upcoming chapters God is working through David to bring an end to their attack and bring the people of Israel to dwell safely. But notice, notice the heart of God, the true king that's demonstrated in this passage. Nathan at first says, oh yeah, David, this is a great idea. Go ahead and do it. But God appears to Nathan in a vision 
and corrects Nathan's counsel. Notice what God says in verse 4. But that night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God reflects and he points David back. Look at my practice in the past, David. I've been the one who's been dwelling with my people. My priority, my heart, has been to be with my people. To be in their midst. As they're journeying through the wilderness. As I'm seeking to bring them to the promised land. And even now, where they're in the promised land, but they have not fully experienced deliverance from all their enemies, my focus is on dwelling with them and bringing them to a place of deliverance and safety and peace. David, I've come to serve, not to be served. That's why I came and entered in to redeem and save my people. Notice what he points David to. He will have a house built for himself. But notice where he draws that attention and where he points them down in verse 10 and following. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. God says, I will bring about a time where my people are at peace. I will bring an end to the assault that they are experiencing, the affliction and the persecution that's coming from their enemies. Until that comes, I am going to continue to dwell in a tent in the midst of my people. But when I do secure their peace, when through you I work and bring an end to all of the distress and, uh, that my people are experiencing, then notice what he says uh, further down uh, in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. God is saying, look, my priority is securing the salvation, the protection, the peace of my people. And I am, I've humbled myself, David, as the God of glory, the creator of all things, who dwells in glory on high, to enter into the presence of my people and dwell in a tent in their midst so that I can move and be with them wherever they go. And I've given them promises to give them a land that they would dwell secure here. And until I've fulfilled those, until I bring an end to that suffering, I will not have a glorious house of cedar like you dwell in. My priority and my focus is on my people. 
Who? Who is this God? That that the creator and maker of all things, the one who is worthy of all glory and honor, the one who we've we've seen, uh, just as uh, Jim pointed us to last week, as his glory filled the temple, they could not be contained in it. He is content. He delights in. His priority is to live in a tent and be in the midst of his people that he might bring about their deliverance. What is the heart of God that we see in this passage? It's of love. Love for his people. A commitment for his people. A desire to work on behalf of his people in their midst to bring about their security. He's completely distinct from the rest of the the gods of the nations around David. Who, the other kings, their approach is, I need to build a glorious temple for my God in order to secure his blessing, in order to secure the deliverance and prosperity of my kingdom and our safety. God is not like the gods of man. He flips all of that upside down. And he said, I am the one who comes into your midst. And it will be when I have secured your protection and your deliverance that I will dwell in a glorious way, a more glorious way in your midst. My grace is first. My priority is on you. The heart of our king is one of compassion and love for his people. Is there a slight rebuke here of David, of looking at his priorities in his heart? I don't know. But it's interesting that what you would hope to see in God's true king would be one who his kingship, his actions, fully reflect the heart of God, the great king. And in fact, that's actually what we see when Jesus of Nazareth enters into our world. It's interesting when John, uh, one of Jesus' authorized spokespersons, writes about God the Son taking on flesh. He draws us to His glory and His might prior to taking on flesh. In John 1, he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him, not anything made that was made. Jesus is the glorious and exalted One. Yet, down in verse 14, we hear this about this glorious One. And the Word became flesh and dwelt or tented. Tented among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father. You see, the glory of our God is demonstrated in His humility, in His taking on flesh, in His dwelling in a tent in our midst. Why? Because our God is not content to dwell with His people in glory until He first experiences humility and suffering on our behalf. You see, when Jesus comes... As the king into our world, he's dwelling in a tent as well. The tent of a body. 
Later, uh, as Matthew, one of Jesus' other authorized spokespersons, will recount and tell us about Jesus' life on this earth, Jesus says of himself, foxes have places to live. But me, the Son of Man, I don't have any place to dwell. Not only did our God, the Creator, humble Himself to take on flesh to redeem and save His people, He entered into this world not in glory. He didn't demand that a a grand palace be built for Him. He was homeless. He experienced suffering. He experienced death on our behalf. Who is this God? One who says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life for many. You see, Jesus fully reflects the heart of our great King because it's suffering first and then glory. For as Jesus lives on behalf of His people, He suffered on behalf of His people, it is only later that He will bring glory and a kingdom for His people. We're able to see that as we go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. As God again points His people to His intention and His desire that His purpose has always been from the garden to the end to dwell with His people in their presence no matter what it takes. In Revelation 21.3, John, seeing this vision, says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Where is it that God will dwell with His people in the end of all things? Well, verse 1 in chapter 21 of Revelation tells us, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. God is renewing and restoring all things. He's recreating the earth. And it will be here that we dwell with Him. We will dwell with Him in glory after He brings an end to sin and shame and pain and suffering and end to all of our enemies. That's what it tells us in verse 4 of chapter 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And as God describes this dwelling place that fills up the entire earth, you can read later in Revelation 21 to see uh, the beautiful pictures as he describes jewels and gold of the, the, the magnificence, the glory of this dwelling place. It'll be God in the midst of His people as we dwell with Him here forever. But notice the pattern. Suffering first and then glory, both for God and His people. David got it a little bit mixed up, focused first on his own palace. But God says, I want you to see my heart, that I will serve and secure the salvation and deliverance of my people, and only then will we be able to dwell together, all of us, in glory. What does this do for us, God's people? What it shouldn't do is lead us to say, well, I guess God's not that concerned with His honor and His glory. He must be so focused on us that it's all about me. But it's not. 
Remember what we've seen. The, we beheld the glory of our God in the face of Jesus, who would humble himself. God's humility, his sacrifice, and his serving of us should point us to honor and worship and glorify him even more. It should underscore and motivate our heart's desire to see him glorified and praised and worshiped in everything that he has done on our behalf. You see, it's the the service and the sacrifice, the grace and the mercy of our God that fuels our worship and our honor of him as we see his heart revealed to us through the work he has done on our behalf. 2 Samuel chapter 7 shows us the heart of our king. But also, it points us to consider and focus on the work of our king. Notice how in God's establishing uh, this relationship, this covenant uh, with David, that as he, he begins to talk to David, he first focuses on God, the great king's work in the past. God's work in the past. Look there in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut you off from your, uh, cut off all your enemies from before you. Here, God is drawing attention to what He has done first. Drawing David's attention. Don't be confused, David, thinking that it's because of what you've done that you have this heart and this desire to build me a, a, a temple. That's what I'm recognizing in your heart, and that's why I'm entering into this relationship with you. God draws, draws no attention to what David has done at all. God draws David's attention and our attention to himself, to what he has done. David, what I am honoring here is my promises, my love and my care for you, my grace and my work on your behalf. This is not because of you, David. It's because of me and my grace. I want you to think back on what I have done for you, where I have called you from what I've been doing and working and how I've been moving in your life. It's all about what God has done. That's the way God always interacts and establishes his relationship with his people. He's the initiator. He is the great worker. And when he calls us to think about the relationship that we have with Him, our thought and our focus should be to reflect on what He has done to establish and bring it into its place. It's not because of our great deeds, our desires, our intention, our worship. We merit nothing before Him. It's because of what He has done. But God doesn't just draw our our attention to what He's done in the past. He draws our and David's attention to what he will do in the future. His works in the future. Look in verses 9 and following. I will make 
for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies, Yahweh declares to you. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that I will make you, or he will make you, a great a house. Here, God is the one who's focused on his work. In fact, we even see him switching it around there. David, you desire to make me a house? Actually, I'm going to be the one who makes it for you. And he's not talking about a house of, uh, of, of cedar or of rock or of stone, but a dynasty, an everlasting kingdom that what will be true for David is that he will always have a king from his line that will rule and reign on the throne. Again, here, we see the complete contrast with the gods of the day. The focus is on the sovereign and gracious and merciful work of the God of Israel on behalf of his people. When we actually see here, this is just a continuation of his character and his fulfillment of his covenant promises that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. When, what did they do? They rebelled. But God in his mercy, he comes and pursues them. And his first words to them is to invite them to repent and confess of their sin. Where are you? What have you done? His first words are words of curse and condemnation, not to Adam and Eve, but to the serpent. And God makes a promise in that curse that I am going to bring about one who will bring an end to all of this destruction that you've brought and who will defeat the enemy. And God's unfolding revelation of how he's going to bring that covenant promise about. First, it's through Abraham. And actually, we see here in this conversation that God is having with David, that he's showing how this covenant that he makes with David is continuing to build upon that covenant that he made with Abraham, who he told Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give you a land. What does God say here? David, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your name great as one of the great ones among the land. I'm going to fully establish my people in this land that I promised. God is working to bring his covenant promises about. And what we're beginning to see is that the one who will come, who will defeat and crush the serpent, will be a king from the line of David, which he actually promised to Abraham. Abraham, kings are going to come from you. And through you, all the nations of the world will be Blessed. God, in His grace and mercy, is pointing us to His work that we would rest and trust and hope in Him. As God's people, this should move us to constantly be in a place of thanksgiving, of worship and trust, of reflecting on God's work in in the past. Never should we as God's people be confused thinking that it was because of something we did was the reason God initiated and moved into my life. It's not because you were better than anybody else out there or you weren't, you weren't as bad as they were. No. 
As God recounts the foundations of his covenant relationship with humanity, the focus is on his work, on what he has done. Because remember, you and I were dead. We were rebels. We could not work. That's the reason there's no recounting of our works in this great covenant. All glory goes to him who has secured our redemption who lived the life we couldn't, who fulfilled the covenant that Adam broke and you and I broke. God in His grace and our King sent Jesus, became sin for us that we might become what? The righteousness of God in Him. Through our efforts and our works? No. Through what Jesus has secured for us. We stand before our God, not due to our own works, but to an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of us, We will always stand in relationship with our God in Jesus and due to what He has done on our behalf. Here, as we see God relating to His people, we see the heart of our God, or the heart of our King, we see the work of our King. And lastly, it directs our hearts to anticipate the coming of our King. Who? Who will this forever King be? that God promises to David. The one whose throne will be established forever. The one of whose kingdom there will never be any end. Is it it David? We've been waiting. Solomon was a wreck of a king. Up to this point, we've been anticipating and hoping and longing for David to finally be established on the throne. David rules and reigns. And now God is promising that his kingdom will not have an end. Is David the forever king? Notice what it tells us in verse 12. God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. David's not the forever king. Death will defeat David. David won't make it. You see, David even now is in a tomb. At least the dust that's left of him dwells there to this day. You see, the forever king, whoever he is, will need to be one who is not conquered or defeated by death as David was. What about, what about his, his son, though? Maybe the son that comes from his own body that's mentioned here, Solomon, maybe he will be the forever king who brings in God's forever kingdom. Uh, but notice, notice what it says. He will build a, a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the Son of Men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God is saying, I will establish your throne forever, but Solomon will not be that forever king either. Notice it doesn't say if he sins. It says when he does. You see, David, 
It's clear that he will not be able to overcome the enemy of death. It's clear that Solomon will not be able to overcome the enemy of sin. You see, whoever this forever king is, who establishes his kingdom and who rules and reigns forever, he must be one who defeats the enemy of death. He must be one who defeats the enemy of sin, for only that one can rule and reign forever. Who in the world will be able to do that? Someone from David's own body? Only if the one who comes from David is also our God who has taken on flesh. And in fact, the one that God sent for us, Jesus, the righteous, did in fact defeat the enemy of sin and he defeated the enemy of death. In Acts, when Jesus' followers are proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, of who Jesus was, Peter actually points back to this passage in 2 Samuel when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Listen to what he, what he says. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did death bring an end? No. God raised him up at the loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus is the defeater of death. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter recognizes the fulfillment of this promise was not in David. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the one who rules and reigns on the throne of David forever. And he is the one who has defeated death. And as the people then ask Peter, what must we do? He says, repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Why can forgiveness of sins come through Jesus? Because he was the perfect one who died in our place. He never sinned. Therefore, his, his death secured our redemption and our deliverance. God never needed to discipline his son. What Jesus suffered was for our sin and our rebellion. And it's because the, the coming king that we serve defeated both death and sin. 
we can be confident to know that He will rule and reign forever. That the heart and the desire that our King has for His people will fully be accomplished. Because Jesus did not rise according to myth or fable. In space and time and history, and we have eyewitness accounts of it, Jesus of Nazareth entered into the tomb a dead man and He came out alive. Jesus went up into heaven an embodied, living human. And He will return as our glorious King who will rule and reign forever. Jesus has done this for you and for me. May we look and hope and trust only in our King, Jesus, who has defeated death and has defeated sin for those who place their faith in Him. Let me pray. God, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You for the promises that we have here in the Scriptures of Jesus as our our King, of whose reign there will never be an end. We pray that as Your people, You would continue to draw our hearts and our attention, our allegiance, our anticipation to His coming Kingdom. Jesus, thank You for Your grace. We thank You that You humbled Yourself to become obedient to the point of death on the cross for us, Your people. We long for Your return. Come quickly, we pray. Amen.